This is the Cubs-related podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Corey. I am joined, as always, by Brendan. And as we discussed a week ago, we are also joined by a special guest this evening, and that is none other than return uh, guest of the podcast, Brian Smith. He is the prospect guru over at Bleacher Nation. And Brian, as always, it is a pleasure to have you. Yeah, guys, thanks a bunch for having me back on. Yeah, so Brian is here to talk all things Cubs minor league system, uh, kind of catch us up on on the season that was. I know the you know we have AFL action, we have some turnover in the Cubs front office, and just sort of getting us set up a little bit for the off season to come with where the Cubs minor league system is. Uh, and of course, you can find Brian's work at Bleacher Nation, as I mentioned. But uh, before we jump into anything else, Brian, want you to tell us about the podcast that you just started uh, with Cubs prospect Max Bain. So tell us a little bit about the Bain campaign. Yeah, thanks for asking about it. Um, A few weeks ago, Max Bain uh, approached me and Chris McLean of the Turn a Pair podcast, and he had an idea to to start a podcast. I think the the goal that Max has is kind of humanizing minor leaguers, and, and it's something that I try to do in my work is try to connect people a little more with prospects because I think that when people start to see them more as, as humans and start to realize a little bit more what they go through to accomplish their dreams, I think it's going to make people appreciate that side of the game so much more. And I think in the long run, it's probably going to lead to a better lifestyle for those minor leaguers. And who, and I think I can speak for all of us that, that they certainly deserve that. And, uh, Max has set up a, about a nine-episode season. I think we're going to do during the off-season. He's nice. got three first-round picks coming on. He's got some opponents that he's faced against. His roommates from from before spring training, which are uh, Aiden McIntyre of the Oakland A's organization and Rio Gomez of the Boston Red Sox organization. Um, so we're going to get to talk to a lot of really cool people and and hear some stories that are that are pretty unique and and not. I think what's going to be good for me is not being so focused just on the baseball side of things, but start to understand, you know, when something's not going well off the field, how that translates to to the product we see on the field. And you can start to to see those connections and understand the the sort of holistic thing, these the life these guys are living a little better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we've talked on here before, Brendan, about, um, you know, in particular, like Cole Franklin and Brendan Davis and how engaging they are on yeah. social media and, and kind of getting to see a little peek inside of their life. So I, I like that, you know, that's kind of uh, something that you guys are doing with Max and, and the people you're going to interview, Brian, because I think in the the age that we're in now where so many of these guys are, are active on social media, you know, we've had the opportunity to talk to a few of them on here, um, you know, in comparison to past prospect classes or, you know, as, as we were growing up, you know, it wasn't really like that, right? Like these guys showed up in the, in the major right. leagues and, and then you kind of are like, oh, here's this guy who's on my favorite team now. I, I read about him, whatever, mm-hmm. but we have the ability now to like, you know, really kind of get to know some of these guys. And, and I think that that's right. been really cool. Like talking to Brendan Davis, you know, he's this, this big time prospect, whatever. We talked to him last summer and, you know, we just, we got off that interview in that call. We're like, wow, like he's such a nice guy. Like what a pleasure that was, <laughs> yeah. you know, in addition to, you know, being excited for his baseball development i think one thing that really happened during the theo epstein jason mcleod era of in the minor leagues is that the cubs really really did prioritize having good people uh that came through the player development side of the organization that was that was really important to them and i think you see it yeah i mean that class with that you mentioned with brennan and cole and cole rotor i mean those are those are really good guys almost up and down that draft class and uh, Max and and some of the guys we're going to talk to that that he got to be friends with this year, like Joe Nahas, Bryce Windham, uh, even the the first round pick this year, Jordan Wicks. I mean, these are all really high makeup guys that that I think the Cubs are betting that makeup helps you reach your ceiling a little bit. And I think that if that's true, and we get to root for them a little harder in the process because we get to know them a little better. I think everybody comes out winning there. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I think, too, you learn more about how these guys are developing because the sport's changing so fast. Even talking with uh, Burrow Caraway last year and, you know, what he was going through with uh, some of the new technology, it gives you a different appreciation of not only are they grinding every single day, but they're doing so in a new baseball environment that's rapidly changing where you have to adapt and keep up because you don't know what's going to happen in the next two years where someone could come right out of the blue and compete with you. So it, it's it's fascinating to be hearing all of this and getting to know these guys. And like Corey said, it's, it is fun seeing the younger guys on, on Twitter and social media because the, you, you never saw that when the older Cubs core was coming up. You know, Twitter wasn't a thing. So it, it's new territory and it's fun to see. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, guys coming out of the blue. Max really is that person. He's somebody that that was an undrafted free agent that, that was an independent ball and was throwing about 88, 90 miles per hour and decided to change his life. And about six months later was throwing 96, 98, got to 99.8 miles per hour this spring for the Cubs. And um, it is, he's a great, I think, representation for the new age of baseball. And I think he can really speak to that while also, you know, he's got a lot of those same old school baseball uh, sort of mentality and the way he carries himself, I think, speaks to that too. So it's been fun to hear how he's connected with teammates from different backgrounds. And I think it's going to be a fun project that I'm excited to do this offseason. Well, we are uh, looking forward to it. Enjoyed episode one is live. You can catch it uh, on Apple Podcasts and, and anywhere else podcasts are or just Apple, Brian. No, it'll be everywhere the podcast. Okay, yeah. So episode one of the Bane campaign is live. You can check that out and look forward to uh, the rest of that first season there that they have planned. But uh, let's dive in to, you know, where the Cubs are at. And I think the the first place I wanted to go, um, you know, was sort of looking at some of the more current news. Uh, and I, I don't expect you to have uh, necessarily really strong opinions uh, on these guys, but I'm, I'm very curious your general thoughts. We've seen some turnover in the front office, uh, certainly since the last time we spoke, uh, but really just in the last couple weeks. Um, you know, Jason McLeod moving on, Randy Bush moving on. Uh, the Cubs have a new general manager. They've got, you know, more hires coming from the Houston Astros that was announced today. So just curious, you know, generally, like, what you think of some of the changes going on. You know, I don't know if you, like I said, a, a strong opinion on Carter Hawkins or anything like that, but just given the background of the people that the Cubs are bringing in, the background of the people that are moving on, um, and, you know, kind of tying it into what you do, which is, you know, looking at the prospects and the system and all of that, just your general thoughts on some of the changes and, and the direction that this might take the Cubs in as an organization. Yeah, I think change is healthy. I mean, I, do, I don't think that you're going to say that Jason McLeod and Randy Bush didn't care about minor league development. And, and I don't think it was Jason McLeod's fault that, that this organiza- organization didn't have a lot of success with pitching development in the last five, six years. But that being said, I think new voices and, and getting new perspectives in, especially from successful organizations like the Indians and Astros, I think is a really healthy thing. And you know, I think Jed Hoyer deserves to to build the front office that he has in his mind. And Carter surely has a strong feeling about player development. He has a lot of background there. And the direction the Cubs are headed right now, I think, is sort of how do you integrate a, building a, far, a strong farm system while also having a healthy major league product and starting to, to get a little more success there. And Carter has taken an organization from has helped take, I should say, a, an organization from a pretty low point to to the World Series. I think it, I think it sounds like a good hire, but I think we'd all just be pretending if we really know that yeah. that it's going to make a huge difference over over the past. And you know, I'm just excited to watch it. And you know, anything that can give us hope right now, why not? <laughs> The, the one question I had with that hire is what does that mean? And we, we don't know, and we'll maybe never know until we actually see it happen in the next year or two. But I'm curious what that means for the current Cubs pitching infrastructure with Craig Breslow and Jacobson and those guys, whether they add to that group or change around some hierarchy or anything related to that. Do you see at least for the next year or so that kind of staying the same, you know, don't try to drastically overhaul something that's been working? 
I do because I think that Jed Hoyer invested in that pretty much right away and and Theo had even started that before he left. Craig Breslow is really highly thought of guy around baseball yeah. and the Cubs are I don't think are going to try to undermine him and risk losing him to another organization especially when you know if you're going to if you're going to invest in minor league pitching development you can't judge that over a one or two year period that you know Craig's been the director of pitching I think for about 2 years and mm-hmm. we're not going to we're not going to see the rewards of what he's doing for another 3 to 5 years and so I don't think that Carter even said during his press conference, there's no secret sauce to developing pitching. And, and I do sort of take his word at that, that, you know, I, I think some of the successes the Indians had were because they're really good at player development. Some of them are just the way that luck goes sometimes and the way that, you know, some pitchers hit and some pitchers don't. And obviously the Cubs haven't had enough luck in that department, but I think Craig is taking the organization in a good place and, I'm not sure that Carter's going to do anything to sort of change the plan they have for pitching, but I could be wrong. Well, we, you know, we'll just assume you're right. I think that's that's the way to go. Yeah, let's do um, that. Yeah. So, you know, getting more now, you know, kind of stepping back and, and looking back at, at the season that was and, and the system as a whole, generally, and I think I've said this with you on here before, I tend to occupy the role of uh, someone who is not necessarily as in-depth with their prospect knowledge and system knowledge, so maybe more general. And then I think Brendan will have some very specific questions for you and players that uh, he's obsessed with and things like that. So from my perspective, and and maybe this is an obvious question, but I feel like it's just a good one to to get a, a clear answer on. Um, going back to last offseason, starting with the Darvish trade and then ultimately at the trade deadline with everything that happened, we heard a million times, right, that the eye was toward the future in a lot of these moves. That was sort of yeah. the background of a lot of these moves. And again, it's it's hopefully an obvious answer, but when you look back at everything that has happened, uh, do you think you're able to sit here as we enter this off season and we saw the development and the new players, et cetera, are you able to say like, yeah, that was a, a, however we got there, right? And whether you agreed with it or not, that was a worthwhile process. And this system, this pipeline, this talent pool is in a better place as a result of all of that action. Yeah, I certainly think the la- the latter thing that you said is true. I-, I think it's probably up to everyone whether it was worth it or not. Right, and, you right. Know, I mean, we're all going to have our feelings on that. But the system is certainly in a better and I think sort of most importantly deeper place than it was a year ago. The trades right now, you know, I don't think there's any of the trades that, that you look at and you're really disappointed with how the return looked during their small stints with the Cubs so far. And I, and I think there's a lot of potential in pretty much every deal they made down to the Jake Marisnik deal, which I, you know, I still can't believe yielded a return that I'm excited about to this day. So I think Jed Hoare did well, starting with you Darvish and going all the way through the trade deadline. But it's, it's easy to look like trades are going well when you're talking about 19 year olds who are, playing well in, in the complex league. We're going to have to wait to see when these guys get to double A, but there's almost no doubt that the Cubs system is far deeper than it was. And I think what the Cubs are betting on is that out of depth is going to come a few top 100, top 50, top 20 prospects over the next three, four years. So Brian, the, the prospect rankings have drastically changed over the last, you know, year. We were talking a year ago about Miguel Amaya and Braylon Marquez and, and, you know, all these guys supposedly coming up. Unfortunately, injuries, COVID, stuff out of their control. They couldn't make that next step in, in 2021. The, the question before we get into some of these specifics of the current prospects for Miguel Amaya and, and Braylon Marquez – where do you see them going early next year? Could they move through the system faster than expected? Could we see them in, in midsummer or just general thoughts of what happened during this uh, unfortunate 2021 for them? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to sell sell this season as a disappointment for the Cubs farm system, you're going to start with those two because those are two guys that were on the 40-man roster 
that had potential to reach Chicago this year where injuries really held him back. Miguel had a pretty pretty solid start in Double A during that first month of the season. He was he was walking a ton, almost I think walking as much as he struck out in Double A, which is pretty crazy for his age relative to his league. I thought he looked a little better defensively than he than he had in in the past two seasons prior to that. Uh, and then he he goes down with that forearm strain. Luckily the doesn't require surgery. The Braylon season was, that was just, it felt like it was tortured from the beginning. He, he, had, yeah. co- he had COVID and then he had problems ramping up from COVID. And then, you know, the, he had, he had his injury that, that also didn't require surgery. And there kept being, I, I think some hope that he would be able to come back and, Every single time it seemed like I'd heard, I think I'd heard in July that he was nearing a comeback and then that didn't quite take. And mm-hmm. so it was just one of those seasons where he just could not get back on the field. And, you know, I think the Cubs are hopeful that they're going to just set him up well to to be ready out of spring training to sort of have a normal ramp up for a season. And I think he'll probably go to double A, which is probably where he was going to go this year. And, we're going to see what that innings limit is. I think that's the thing that's going to be most interesting is, is he going to be allowed to pitch a hundred innings and is he going to start? And if he's not, then do you want to really be light on the innings early in the season? Because you think he might reach the majors by the end of the year. I mean, those are all really interesting questions that we, that we should start to get answered in spring training, but he still has a lot of potential. I, you know, nothing, nothing from this year, has done anything to the ceiling that Braylon Marquez has. I think the reason that you're going to see him drop a little bit in prospect rankings is just because it does seem a little less likely that he reaches that ceiling now, but you never know. So with Braylon, you know, we saw the velocity reaching at max triple digits, good secondary pitch. I was interested when he came up in 2020 during the shortened season that he was he started to throw a sinker a little bit. And that caught my eye because a lot of the other young current Cubs have implemented new sinkers like Adbrazzoli. And so with with Braylon, that to me said, okay, maybe he does have the potential to make it as a starter. But with the injury concerns and a year loss in development, just from reading the room a little bit, it sounds as if the the gen maybe this is wrong, but the general consensus appears that he's more destined to the bullpen even as soon as this year, rather than as you said, maybe not extending him out, being super light on the innings. Uh, the question I have specifically though is, could could we see him in that type of Justin Steele, Keegan Thompson type role? or his multiple innings, or is he maybe kind of destined for like a seventh plus inning late reliever role where it's kind of like one and done? I think you definitely could see him pitch multiple innings. I don't think there's any reason to necessarily believe he couldn't. People talk about him as a reliever because he throws 101 miles per hour and because he's had a hard time pitching a lot of innings in any season. And that's going to inevitably follow somebody like that. Also, when you have command problems, the same thing's going to happen. So I understand why people sort of oftentimes pigeonhole him as, you know, future closer, future setup man. But if we go back to the last time this guy was on the mound, which is, you know, the second half of the 2019 season, the final three months he had that season as a starting pitcher were some of the best three months a Cubs pitching prospect has had in 20 years. And so yeah. I think it's probably getting a little ahead of ourselves to to just write it off right now. But I think for the 2022 season, this is a guy that that has not pitched much now in two seasons. And so the Cubs are going to, to treat him with kids' gloves. And it might be a little bit like uh, one of the pitcher they acquired for Anthony Rizzo, Alexander Vizcaino, who yeah. the Yankees had high hopes for this year, was on the 40-man roster and had a little bit of a slow uh, ramp up himself. And when by the when the Cubs acquired him, Vizcaino had been making starts in the Yankees organization, but he was pitching like one or two innings at a time. I kind of wonder if that might be a roadmap for the Cubs, if we might see Marquez still pitch as a starter but maybe only go two innings for a while Mm. so kind of in that same tier with uh talking about older you know quote-unquote older cubs prospects um miguel amaya you alluded to it the walks in double a 
before the injuries caught up were extremely high. In 106 plate appearances, he walked at a 20% clip. That's that's yeah. insanely high. And he was not even striking out. He's only striking out in around 20% of his plate appearances too, which you love to see at AA being so close to the bigs. But even in that sample, he was not getting you know a lot of base hits, only had one home run in 106 plate appearances. So I'm wondering... I don't know if you got a chance to watch some of those at bats, but was he just not seeing anything to hit whatsoever? Was this kind of like a byproduct of a small sample size uh, and some misfortune? Even when he was playing, did you, did you like what you were seeing from Miguel Maya? And was that signaling maybe he could go through the system faster and even may have been up at some point last year? Yeah, early in the minor league season this year, you saw a lot of command problems sort of across the board from pitchers. And I think where you have to give Miguel a lot of credit is during that first month, he didn't have the anxiousness that a lot of hitters had that was leading to really high strikeout rates. He was letting he was letting the pitchers who were also getting reacclimated to to pitching in front of fans and in stadiums again he was allowing them to make their mistakes and he was not going to swing at a bad pitch and that's that's a credit to him his swing decisions are really good that being said what, what you don't see from miguel enough is enough impact contact to where you're starting to to see a a well over average hitter in the in the broad scope of it and i think i still have amaya as the top five prospect in the system. And the reason I do is because when I see that guy, I, when I've seen him take batting practice, there's power in that bat. I really believe it. I might end up being wrong on that one. I, I That's a hill I might end up dying on. But <laughs> I think that I think he will find it eventually. And oftentimes for catchers, I do think that that comes a little later. Um, I think he gets there, but... That's going to be the thing, I think, ultimately that determines whether he's a regular, everyday major league catcher or a guy who's sort of destined for for a backup role is going to be how many balls do we see leave the yard or at least get to the gap. Right. Well, Corey and I talked about this uh, you know, pretty often throughout the season with Amaya's injuries not being able to be on a good developmental pace. It, it sucks because with Wilson Contreras' contract coming up, it would have been nice to have some confidence of what to expect totally. from Amaya for this year. And that may have informed what do you do with Wilson? Do you keep Wilson, extend him, move him to a different position part-time so you can mix and match both these guys? To me, even with Marquez being considered, that lack of development was was my, my biggest uh, disappointment this year. Yeah, I know. It's like, you know how those minor league magazines like baseball America, they'll always put like a mock 2025 lineup. And it's just, it's just so easy when you do it and you write it out and you're like, okay, catcher, Miguel Amaya, let, you know, center field, Brennan Davis, shortstop, Ed Howard. And you, and you write it all out and you're like, Oh gosh, all these pieces are going to fit perfectly. And then they start playing the games and you remember, okay, these are, these are 20, 21 year old kids. And this stuff just never goes to plan. And, and, uh, I think that's true for me for Miguel's season, and I, you're exactly right. It would it would have been perfect if Miguel had a really nice year, and you start to to see that catching timeline over the next five eight years come together as Wilson hands off to Miguel, and boom, you're set. But um, it's just not that easy in player development. Yeah. So uh, Brian, to you know, kind of like pull things back a bit. I mean, you know, talking about those two guys in Marquez and Amaya in particular, um, you know, obviously that's kind of on the side of things that didn't go the way that you want them to and stuff, but uh, in, a, in a broader sense, and, and if you have an answer on the pitching side and the hitting side, I would, I would take both. Um, I'm curious, when you look back at this season, especially considering so many of these guys didn't play in 2020, some of them were able to go to the uh, alternate site, you know, during the COVID shortened season. But most of these guys, you know, this was their first full season in in quite some time. When you look back at everything that happened, um, and I I should also add the the caveat for a question like this, I assumed for most questions like this, the answer could just be something Brennan Davis related. Um, You can can say that, but I, I think we've uh, tried to bang that drum to our audience a lot that he's great. He's going to be great. Um, so you don't have to use Brendan Davis if you don't want to. That's all I'm saying. Um, 
But when you look back at this season, what would you say are are the most important developments for single players that happened this year? Be it a a, a change in their mechanics, a jump in their progress, uh, just something that happened with particular players where you look at back at this season and go, this these are the most important developments for the future of this organization that happened in the minor league season. You know what's funny is as much as this fan base is hungry for a homegrown starter, I think it's pretty amazing that we're that we're looking back at the 2021 season. We're at the end of October. How little talk has happened about the fact that the Cubs had a 20-year-old minor leaguer, minor league pitcher this year, that had one of the three highest strikeout rates that a 20-year-old pitching prospect has ever had. And that's DJ Hers, who was the minor league pitcher of the year, who pitched most of the season for the Low A Myrtle Beach Pelicans, who had a 40% strikeout rate this year as a left-handed pitcher who's not even yet close to, to a finished product and where he's going to be as a pitcher. It's a It was a remarkable season, and he had one outing that was sort of disastrous that takes his ERA from like the low twos or high ones, I don't even know, to to the mid threes that kind of, I think when you just look at the season statistic, you don't appreciate the season for what it was. But if you, if you just think about that fact, the Cubs had a minor league pitcher who had one of the best three strikeout seasons someone his age has ever had. That's pretty (laughs) exciting. And it doesn't feel like we talk about it very much. Does it? No, I no. mean, even you bring that up, it's like, huh, how did how did Corey and I not talk about this guy? So with, with DJ Hertz, if you go on his fan graphs page, he has a future value of 35. So, of course, people are underrating him. He had a strikeout rate, as you said, one of the best, almost 15 batters per nine innings. That's absurd that he was doing that. What What is he throwing here? Because he, d- he did have a ground ball rate, at least in three starts. In high A of 50%, how is he attacking his own? What's he throwing? What's he working on? And any other comments you have? Yeah, Lance Brozdowski over at, at Marquee Sports Network does does some really fantastic work on the minor leaguers, and he's he's really knowledgeable about about pitch grips and pitch types, and he's a he's sort of a product of driveline. And he wrote a comp of DJ in his prospect rankings that I've thought about a lot, and it's Dontrell Willis. And the reason that he says that is that DJ's really funky. He's he's this guy who's got long legs and he and he pitches off one side of the rubber and he goes he does not go towards home plate like we like we were all sort of taught when we were pitching in little league. He he goes like diagonal towards the on deck circle of the first first base side dugout and then he comes across his body. It's a cross body delivery. And hitters just do not see the ball well. Lefties, I mean, it's almost unfair to ask a 21-year-old left-handed hitter in the minor leagues to try to pick up this guy. But but even righties don't see him at all. And so it's a fastball that's generally like 92 to 94 miles per hour. But I think because of how funky it is, it plays up a ton more than that. He gets so much swing and miss on it. And then this year he made a lot of progress on a changeup that's new to him. I, I remember talking to him during the COVID lockdown, that was sort of what he was working on from home. They'd, they'd showed him a grip before he left Arizona, uh, before COVID shut that spring training down, and he was just practicing that, and I think it became his best secondary this year. And then he has a curveball that I think shows a lot of promise, although it's sort of a funky pitch based on his arm angle and and how sideways he is. It, you know, I mean, Brendan, you can sort of imagine – it, it almost has like a slider look because he's so horizontal and it has to come that far. And um, it's more of a horizontal pitch than a vertical pitch, which is a weird thing to say about a curveball. So we'll, I think we'll see where that goes ultimately. But And I wonder if he's a guy the Cubs add a cut or two because they've, they've definitely been leaning that way in the upper minors with guys. But where he gets success is just – and where Dontrell got success is just in the the oddness of that delivery. Yeah, I'm watching video of him now. You're right. He steps, you know, towards the first base side and then he throws way across his body and you can tell his his legs are are extremely long. You can definitely see that Dontrell Willis vibe to him. The when when you're, when you're talking about throwing across your body, you can think of some examples. Jake Arrieta from the opposite side. The question I have 
with these types of lefties and the crossfire action, the first thing that comes to my mind is stamina and the ability to go deep into games, deep into a season. Are there concerns about that because he kind of has that funky delivery that he may be more of a, a swing type starter coming out of the bullpen? Or is this guy kind of on the track to be, you know, uh, an everyday, every fifth day starter? He did not. He did not do a great job of pitching efficiently this year and getting to to five innings, much less six innings. So, I do think that that is going to be the thing that sort of limits his prospect ranking this year. Is that you're going to start to see him pigeonholed a little bit as like the reliever risk is high in this guy. But the thing he has going for him is he's a he's a pretty elite athlete. He was a he was a three sport guy in high school, really good football player, um, and so. I know when you talk to scouts about guys with weird deliveries, they always prefer that to be out of a good athlete because a good athlete is going to be able to to get that muscle memory and repeat himself a little quicker. And DJ still has a long way to go in the weight room. And, you know, when he gets to be a finished product there, what, what, is, what does that do to his stamina? I think those are all questions that will be answered over time. But, you know, we look at these playoffs. I mean, these, these starters aren't being asked to go that deep into games anyway. So I don't think there's any reason to to right now be worried that that ultimately he can't be a starter so uh dj is the answer on the pitching side would you have an answer on the hitting side as far as you know the 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 most important development for you know the future of the organization type deal yeah I, i i i would give two answers i i would say the probably the most important development that happened this year and the guy who i think is going to eventually replace Brendan Davis as the de facto number one prospect over the next couple of years is Christian Hernandez, who was the Cubs big international free agent signing coming out of COVID. He made his debut this year in the Dominican summer league. And it's, you know, there's not a lot of value to be taken from, from Dominican summer league stats. And I'm not going to pretend to say that he raised his profile at all this year, but when you talk to people in the organization, what he did was he, he, continued to be the player that they signed and the player they gave many million dollars to. And he, he is somebody that the Cubs believe if things go right, he could be a top 10 prospect in baseball. He could be sort of one of the next superstars, homegrown superstars for the Cubs organization. So he's a big one, but we didn't see enough of it. I think that it can, that you can really count it as a developmental success story this year. I think where I might go is Owen Casey, who is one of the two players the Cubs acquired for you darvish i think when i watched videos of those guys on the days following that trade owen was not the one to me that was the most impressive and he i i think i might have had him third like as the third best prospect they acquired when i watched those videos and he jumped all the way to to the best on that list this year and i have him as the number three prospect in the system and i have that because i'll tell you guys that I had three different pitchers that were in Arizona this year that were facing him in scrimmages and stuff reach out to me to say, you know, have you heard a little bit about what Owen Casey's doing <laughs> wow. behind the scenes in extended spring training? And I was like, yeah, I've heard a little bit. And he's like, this guy takes at bats like like no one we see down here. He's like, they're, these are major league at bats he takes. He makes adjustment. You know, I think in scrimmages they probably face each other, you know, more than four times. They probably face each other six, eight times. And they're like, he's making adjustments from at bat to at bat that are that are hard for us to keep up with. And we're talking about some guys that were that were upper level pitchers. And then I started to talk to people in the organization, coaches and player development people, and people just rave about this guy. I think he's a real impact big league hitter. He's not a great defender. And I don't think he's probably ever going to be a, a great defender, but I think the bat's going to play, and I think it might really play. So with Owen Casey, I was surprised he had immediate success right when he left uh, the, the complex league. And you look at a comparable guy with Ed Howard, same level, didn't have that immediate success as Owen Casey did. Owen, in A, he had a 101 WRC plus, whatever, but he walked at an 18% rate in 90 plate appearances. And he did strike out over 30% of the time. That was a problem. Even in the Arizona Complex League, he struck out in almost 30% of his plate appearances. But the walks persisted. Even in Arizona, he was walking almost once every five plate appearances. So 
two two questions. One, the plate discipline is that kind of in the same tier as we were just talking about Amaya, where guys throwing around them, or is that a byproduct of like a truly innate sense of having plate discipline? And two, I, maybe I need to change the way I'm thinking, but I've always been hammered by prospect, you know, post blogs, fan graphs growing up as a baseball fan, always projecting that strikeout rate, even at these younger levels, are the most significant predictor of major league success. So when I see Owen Casey's strikeout rate yeah. or Ed Howard's or whomever, I'm always like, huh, like what do I think about this? Because the because the baseball era has changed so much. Should I be concerned about this? Or is this something that I just need to get over? Yeah, I think that is a fair concern about Owen. And I, I think the walk rate comes, I think it's something innate about him. And if Owen has talked a lot in the past about how he, about how much he admires Freddie Freeman there are there are people that that have said that comparison about Owen for the last couple of years, and he I think he really models his game off Freddie's, and I think you do see some of that game. But if he wants to be ultimately as good as Freddie Freeman is in the major leagues, he is going to have to to cut that strikeout rate a little bit. And I'll be interested when he gets in when he gets a little more advanced in the deeper into the system. Do we see that sort of second swing that guys like Freeman and Rizzo and Vado all have when, you know, if he chokes up and shortens down, are we going to get a lower strikeout rate? Is he going to get a better two strike, two strike approach as he ages? Like those guys all have fantastic two strike approaches. That's going to be really interesting. I don't think the Cubs were even that worried about that this year. I think they were more worried about, you know, starting to, starting to see him make more impact contact and he did and he didn't really in low a if you look at those numbers the power wasn't really there yet right but it really was in arizona during the complex league season it was even more during extended spring training where i think he was pretty easily the best player in arizona during that uh he has a bunch of power that we're going to start to see in the next couple of years and the thing that will be the decider is this guy, you know, sort of a back end top 100 guy, or is he a top 30 prospect? Is going to be that strikeout rate, and if he can be sort of the the all in hitter or just sort of the power walk hitter. Right. So with the strikeout rates, it's you don't get much video with the lower levels, but do you have a sense of why he's striking out? Is it uh, is he chasing pitches? Is he missing high fastballs or a different type of pitch type? The ones that I saw were high fastballs. Yeah, that's. Okay. I think that's going to be, and and that's pretty common right now in Major League Baseball, right? The way they're teaching guys leaves yep. that sort of hole at the top of the zone, and I think that is sort of where Owen's having the most strikeout problems. Yeah. Well, I feel as if you're going to pick a reason to to strike out, like I would pick, like striking out pitches up in the zone like that, rather than having like an innate chase. ability to chase. Exactly. Right. So. Again, when you talk about different predictors of success, the other one was walk rate at, at that level. And, you know, following Eloy Jimenez on the way up and even Gleyber Torres and, you know, those guys, the reasons I was so excited about them and even Brennan Davis back when he was in Able was because they weren't striking out. They were walking at high, you know, relatively high levels and they're hitting home runs like they're just check, check, check. And with Owen Casey right now, he's, you know, he was doing that for a little bit just to strikeouts in the current stage of his development, are, are, are a little bit too high. But it's good to hear that maybe it's just a byproduct of high fastballs. And given how the game has changed so much, there's going to be a greater emphasis to combat those high fastballs. So I feel as if the adjustments from coaching and development, the the possible solutions will be there for now. And maybe they weren't as prominent or, or there in the past couple of years. And that really is what ate up a lot of the current Cubs big leaguers. So... I think if if the strikeout rate is a byproduct of just swinging and missing that pitches inside the zone, like I feel like that could just easily be addressed in the next couple of years. Totally, and I remember talking to you guys on this show about Brennan Davis. I think like after the, his first month in South Bend, when he was just sort of ascending up, and one thing that jumped out about Brennan right away was his ability to use the opposite field and and sort of the opposite field power he had. And what that sort of told me at that age was. This is a kid who who understands how to use all fields at this age. That means his hit tool is is pretty mm. good, no matter what the strikeouts say. And Owen has that similar thing. Owen has a lot of power that he's already showing to left center. 
Uh, and he didn't homer in Myrtle Beach a couple times because he was hitting balls to center field that I think other hitters would probably pull and hit for home runs, and he's still sort of exploring the studio space of the outfield a little bit. But yeah. I think that I think that gives some hope that he does have a pretty good hit tool because he is willing to use the whole field. So with Ed Howard being at Myrtle Beach as well, we'll, we'll talk about Ed a little bit, uh, strikeout rates were... It, it was higher, 30% in 326 plate appearances. Uh, four home runs in that sample, that at 225. If you're interested in those advanced stats, he had a 279 weighted on base average, a 64 WRC+. plus. So I was in Arizona about two weeks ago at the uh, at the Instructs watching practice. Brian, like, Ed stood out right away. And Corey made fun of me for saying this, but he is a massive human being. Like, he is a big, big do, especially for a shortstop. And the talent is obviously there. Like, I know there's a lot of talent within that within that camp, but when you compare him to his peers, it, it jumps out right away. So it's surprising to see that the numbers didn't really go in line with that talent. Not concerned about it. I was talking to Greg Huss of the Growing Cubs podcast. He said, yeah, don't make too much out of that because, you know, sometimes I do panic about stuff like this. But with his numbers and the way he developed, when you're watching some of those Myrtle Beach games, do you see adjustments later in the season being made compared to the earlier portion of the season? What do you make of those strikeouts? And where do you see him starting next year and maybe ending next year? Kind of a loaded question, a group of questions there, but really fascinated by Ed Howard because, you know, defensively, athleticism, people rave about his work ethic. I'm, I'm fascinated by his entire trajectory at this point. Yeah, I think had there not been a global pandemic that that cost him an entire year of, of normal development time, I think if this was a guy that had been drafted in a conventional year in a first round and he comes to camp the next year, there's almost no way that the Cubs organization would ever put him in low A to start the season. That's just mm-hmm. not, the Cubs have never really done that. The reason that they did that this year is specifically because of that lost year. They were like, he might not be ready offensively for this level yet, but what he needs to see is pitching on a daily basis. He needs to start to get those reps. We don't care about the results. We want to see him get the reps. And so they put him there. And if you and if you watch those first few weeks in Myrtle Beach, I mean, the Myrtle Beach team got scheduled to play the Tampa Bay low A team this year, like so often at the beginning of the season. And if you guys know anything about what Tampa Bay did in the minor leagues this year, it's ridiculous. They they had the best record in every league they played in, I think, except for one where they were the second best record. And yeah. the the Rays low A team this year out of the gate was stacked with, and it was almost unfair. They played a bunch of players that should have been in high A. Um, and those pitchers just ate up the Pelicans. And I think it was, it was a really good way to show sort of, okay, Ed doesn't really belong here, but the Cubs are, are getting him at bats. And I don't think we should take these numbers that seriously. And so when I'm looking at his season, I'm, trying to like filter through and be like, okay, what are his numbers in the second half? What are, are we seeing growth from beginning to end? And if you look at his last say 50 games, he hit 228, 285, 315. So, you know, those aren't great numbers. And I do think that it's fair to worry about the bat long-term. I'm not going to, you know, I'm I'm not going to discount people that are like, okay, the hit tool grade needs to come down based on this year. I think that's valid. But I also think that he's not a guy who should fall off the prospect map. A because he's in a he's a really fantastic shortstop. I mean, you talk to like the pitchers that he plays defense behind, and they rave about him. And um, and we saw it on the video this year. He's a really good shortstop. The power is, I think, going to come a little bit as above average at his position because, like you said, he's really strong. He's got pretty, I'd say, above average, if not like fully plus bat speed. Um, so I think the power will get there. The question ultimately is going to be, does he take enough walks and does he strike out at a low enough rate to be able to have a passable sort of yeah. batting average on base combo? Now, with the lack of walks, the strikeout rate, is that a hyper-aggressive approach, not recognizing pitches, getting eaten alive by a particular pitch type? 
the ones I, I that's actually a project that I that I plan on doing this offseason is watching a lot of those strikeouts and, and digging in specifically, but I feel like sort of anecdotally from watching it's a lot of breaking balls. Okay. Uh, and and off speed stuff in general that I you know, he just didn't get a lot of experience seeing that stuff. I mean, even the even the summer before he was drafted that showcase circuit where a lot of guys, you know, see the the best players from around the country. He had to call that uh, quits about halfway in because he had a shoulder injury. And so if you, I mean, if you look at the last two and a half seasons, he just does not have a ton of experience besides this. And so this was a real learning year. And I think what we're going to really learn, uh, we're going to really learn about Ed next season and the adjustments that he makes after, after everything he went through this year. And, he was a better he was a better version of himself in August and September, and I think if he builds on that, he can get back to being sort of the the prospect that we all thought of on that night that he was drafted. And uh, I still have hope for him, but I I do think it's fair to have mm-hmm. healthy skepticism. So at camp, the other guy that stood out, I mean, this is the guy that stood out to me was. Kevin Alcantara, talk about big size. I got Jorge Soler vibes from him when I saw Jorge Soler when he was a, a young prospect with the Cubs in Arizona. I, I, I mean, Brian, he he looks like he's a giant um, out, out there. Yeah. And the the tools are obviously there. If you go to his Fangrass page, uh, they rank his raw power on an 80 scale as a potential 70 that's insane but they also rate his speed as 60 again 60 out of 80 is one standard deviation above his peers and they also rate his fielding potentially above average like everything's above average besides the hit tool and that seems to be you know maybe a common theme with some of these younger cubs prospects at this point, but I'm curious with what you've seen from Alcantara, we know the tools are there, but how can he improve his hit tool? Is it the same thing with Ed? Is it just needing more development and exposure or is there an obvious hole in his swing that you hope the Cubs can eventually fill? Yeah. He's somebody that had a real significant hitch in his swing. It was his swing when he was with the Yankees, he had this, he had this giant leg kick, like one of the biggest leg kicks I've ever seen. So I guess it's more fair to sort of talk about that than, than a hitch itself. Um, but it was just this, it was this really like physical swing where he was really using his entire body. He was using all of his legs and, and his hands, his hand path was really complicated. And I think that's a pretty easy thing for a, for a hitting infrastructure team to work on is just quieting everything down and, I think the reason he's probably doing that is because he's a guy that can hit for power, but he's so skinny that he probably didn't have a ton of power in his bat. And so you're just looking to create power by using sort of everything you've got. And as he adds muscle over the next two, three years, which is probably more important to his future than even the baseball side of it is just, you know, can we, how much muscle can we add on? He's like, he's a little bit like Brennan was when he joined the system where it's like, we're not talking about adding 15 pounds of muscle. We're talking about like 50. Um, and you saw that. And I was in Arizona a couple weeks ago as well. And and I was also taken aback by him, not just sort of how tall he was, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that that he does have like broad enough shoulders that I think yeah, man. the potential is there to add that muscle. And I mean, it, it, he's jarring to see because when you see him, he looks more like a, like an NBA player than he does a major league baseball player. But, you know, he's got that natural baseball ability and um, yeah, I, he's, he's one of the most unique players the Cubs have had in a long time. And I, and it'll be all those grades I think are fair, but I think what people need to understand is like there's huge error bars right now around all those grades because what he is right now is really like it's going to have very little to do with what he is in a couple seasons. So I have two more questions and I'll throw it back to Corey, but I first want to go back to one question before I talk about pitching. Is there anyone you want to highlight from the hitting group that that is really catching you and getting your attention that I missed? Uh, I think, I mean, I think the Cubs second round pick this year, James Triantos, is oh, somebody yeah. that, that all of us prospect nerds are really excited about. He's, yeah. um, he's a guy that 
didn't have as much sort of showcase um, experience as a lot of top high school players. And I think because of that, he was not considered a first round talent or even probably by most organizations, a second round talent, but the Cubs were in on him early. And I know um, Eric at Fangraphs talked about how, if you look at his numbers from the showcases he did play at, he had some of the most elite contact rates you ever see. And, uh, he gets drafted out of out of a Virginia high school conference that that from what I've read about is not like the most advanced in the world. And when he got to Arizona to begin pro ball, he struggled for like a week or not even probably like half a week. And then from there, it was it was amazing. I mean, it was like he was playing high school baseball again. And he all the things that he was successful at translated immediately. He was making tons of contact. His power is enough for a second baseman already, and and I think that he does have some room to grow. I, I get a little like Ian Kinsler from from James mm-hmm. Triantos that that I'm excited about, and um, yeah, he's somebody that that it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting to see next year how how much he can pop when he gets to the to the full season minors because he in a normal sort of draft year and how things would have gone in the past is he's a guy that would have gone to college and become a first round pick, I think. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, can the Cubs develop James Triantos in the next three years, like he would have been developed at the university of North Carolina. You certainly, you know, you certainly hope that it's better than that. And that's sort of the challenge to the Cubs is you know, do a lot more for this kid in the next three years, get him to the major leagues, uh, and show that that your development system really really works because he does have that talent. So I want to just finish up my last question here on the pitching side of things. So a lot of arms to follow in 2022. I am interested in the arms the Cubs acquired at the trade deadline. There's a lot of them there, so I can't list all of them here. But the two arms that stood out to me are one currently on the big league team and two knocking on the door. So you have uh, Cody Hoyer and you have Caleb Killian. I want to start with Caleb Killian. The walk rate, very low, almost like one batter per nine inning. And uh, looking at some of the pitch qualities he has, seems to be a dominant fastball guy, a fastball iteration with cutter, four seam, two seam. I want to hear about the the logic you think the Cubs are using of – Going after Caleb Killian, he's not fitting the mold that, that you see from the high-powered starters that a lot of teams are are using these days. But he does have that command. He does have multiple fastball types. And what's kind of interesting to me is that he has this like long delivery, and it reminds me of like Ryan Jensen. It reminds me even of Cody Hoyer, who I just mentioned. And there's two ways of thinking about this. The other way is like the Giolito way where you're short arming everything and other pitchers have kind of followed that same philosophy, but the Cubs have targeted two pitchers now who are not doing that. So do you have any thoughts about like this longer delivery? And do you have any thoughts of maybe this is how the Cubs are differentiating themselves going after these types of guys with this, these deliveries and the you know high command guys. What's your read on some of these new guys they just developed? Yeah, that's interesting about the uh, about the long delivery. I mean, Ryan Jensen, who's a who's one of the Cubs' top pitching prospects as well, is somebody who's got a long delivery. I mean, one of the longest arm actions you'll ever see. Um, and yeah, the Cubs don't seem to to shorten up people as much as you often see in other organizations and. To be honest, I don't have a great feel for for why that is necessarily. I mean, that's I, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down myself as something <laughs> to ask people that know a little bit. But you know, I do think that those guys. I think people with with those longer deliveries. I mean, anecdotally, it feels like to me like do a pretty good job of getting extension um, as a result of sort of sort of the length of the delivery. Um, so I wonder if maybe that's at play. But Caleb's a guy that when I watch tape after he came. I was sort of impressed the most at his cutter and it was not a pitch that got written up a ton that I had seen from other places. But when I watched the video, there had been times during the the three months before the Cubs acquired him that in a lot of starts, Caleb had gone cutter dominant where he was pitching as 
the cutter being his primary pitch, and he was using his four-seam fastball as his sort of two-strike out pitch, uh, which is pretty unique and not something you often see from from minor leaguers. Uh, you see it yeah. a little bit with some major leaguers that have really good cutters, but uh, that was I was really hopeful about that because I think that that's a that's a nice thing that the Cubs don't have a ton of is somebody who's who can pitch backwards a little bit like that if you consider I guess a cutter sort of pitching backwards but uh the thing to he struggled a little bit since he joined the cubs i mean he didn't he didn't have a great couple starts in double a and then and then the covid thing happened to that team that cost him the rest of his season and he's been in the arizona fall league now and made two appearances and and really struggled there and so i he was he was the person that jumped out to me the most honestly after the trade deadline when I watched the film as somebody who i I was like that people i I don't know why people haven't jumped on board yet and and then with the struggles it's it's given me i guess a little bit of self doubt in my evaluation but i I am hopeful that the guy that you see in some starts who's who is pitching harder than a lot of scouting reports say? I mean, he can get the ball to the mid 90s, and it, and it looks really clean coming out. He's not he's not somebody that that efforts to get velocity, and has that cutter. His spin isn't great yet, but it, I think that might be a reason the Cubs acquired him itself. The Cubs are pretty pretty good, and they feel pretty strongly about their ability to teach spin. And so, if you can develop either of his breaking balls into an out pitch. Then I do think you have a pretty pretty complete starting pitcher with with good primaries, good command, and and then you'd have the off speed. So with uh, uh, Killian, it's it's a weird comp, but I always go back to this because it it just stands out to me. The the one guy who has a similar pitch repertoire is Lance Lynn. He throws basically all fastballs, like cutter, two seam, four seam, and that's how he's made his career. And his velocity has gone up over his career, where he's sitting mid nineties now. But it's all to say. Like you can make this work if he's going to be strictly a dominant fastball type pitcher. If he has that tight that tight spin, or if he's locating well like Lance Lynn does, then yeah, like there is a, there is a world where he's a mid tier starter, potentially top of the rotation if everything is perfect. Now that's likely not going to happen, but I think that the possibility is is there. And then before Corey uh, interjects here, why do you think he's struggling? Is he just not ramped up is the scheduling with with the COVID situation in the Arizona Fall League affecting him or is this something that he's struggling through with adjustments he's trying to change things and in the process he's getting hit a little bit more yeah it's weird I mean the Arizona Fall League is a little different this year first of all I would say like if you look at the walk rate in the league this year it's like triple what it's been in the past almost so Mm -hmm. I, I don't they're using an automated strike zone there that, that there have been some complaints about so far. And uh, they have a really, really quick pitch clock. I think it's fif- a 15 second sort of hard pitch count uh, between pitches. And so I think pitchers are getting used to it a little bit. I know Keith Law wrote up one of his starts and said he was just 91 to 93 and, you know, throwing a curveball that wasn't doing a whole lot. And so that can that can be any number of things. I think it's probably a ramp up thing. It probably pretty weird from pitching the most innings you, you ever had as a professional to then sort of being shut down unexpectedly at the end of uh, August and then getting asked to sort of ramp back up to pitch in this very right. sort of advanced and uh, competitive league in October. And so I don't think the Cubs are even making much of, of what he does results wise in the Arizona fall league, as much as sort of getting a baseline for what those pitches do so that they can build a plan for him next year with the hopes of, of him reaching the majors next year. I don't think it's an impossible thing for him to, to start a game or four in the second half. All right, Brian, last question for you. And then we're going to get you out of here. Um, Again, you know, kind of bringing it to a more general sense. I just wanted to get your, your feeling on, We've heard a lot from Jed Hoyer um, for kind of a while now. I think, you know, it's, I'm sure it's not the first time he said it, but I think in, in recent memory, again, around kind of the Udarvis trade and, and collecting all of those young prospects, we've heard him since then continue to reiterate this idea that acquiring so much prospect talent is not necessarily only to develop it for your major league 
organization, but that it can also allow you to acquire major league talent from other teams and and use some of these players as as trade capital, if you will. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, when you look at where the system is at now, A, is the depth there to do that, to kind of back up some of those words that, that Jed has has talked about? And if so, are there any guys, aside from the obvious names, that you'd be really hopeful are not a part of some of those moves? If the Cubs look to, you know, maybe move some younger guys for someone else's major league talent instead of spending a bunch of money in the free agency pool? Yeah, I think the the thing that the Cubs system has going for it right now, it's both sort of a positive and a negative thing, is that you have one definitive number one prospect in Brennan, who, of course, is not being traded. And there's essentially no scenario, I think, where he where he would be that's realistic in any way. Um, and then from there, I mean, I've seen people say that from 2 to 14, you can almost interchange anything. I, I think I'd probably have Christian Hernandez second and then say say maybe the same thing from, from about 3 to 14 is the Cubs have a lot of, like, number – six prospects um which is a good thing and a bad thing it's i think what holds them back in farm system rankings is that they don't have more sort of number three number two number four prospects that are you know sort of at the back end of a top 100 um but what the cubs are betting on is that if we have 10 guys that are number six prospects then three of them are going to be good enough to Mm -hmm. to ascend to that number three level and so what that allows you to do is you know, you evaluate your own guys and you say, okay, these are the three that we think are going to pop. So we're not going to trade them. Um, and then you talk to other teams about, you know, the guy you want to acquire and you say, these are the guys that, that we considered trading them for. And, you know, you hope they don't pick the one that ends up popping, but yeah, I think the depth is there to, to immediately begin making trades that help the major league team. And to answer the second part of your question, I think the guy that that I'd be the most bummed if they traded that's not, you know, at the very top of the system, mostly because he just didn't have the chance to prove this year the the gains that he'd made during the lost season is Cole Franklin. Uh, Cole had a had a shoulder injury that didn't require surgery that that he ended up losing the year from. I think, you know, if it was really important to the Cubs, he was going to be able to come back in September, but. At that point, I think they correctly sort of decided, you know, what's the point of, of throwing him back in here? You know, we'll just keep him on sort of a, a more regimented, dictated schedule. But he's somebody that before the injury, a lot of people were really excited about where Cole was going. I think the curveball had, had really made a lot of gains. I think he was, you know, getting to 97 miles per hour and and certainly like getting to 95 a lot more often than he ever had before. And so that's what you're going to see smart teams do. I mean, you're going to see smart teams try to poach Cole. And, um, you know, I think the Cubs will, I, I do think they'll be sort of smart enough to, to make sure that, that that doesn't get away from them because I think everybody sees a guy who, who does have sort of top to middle potential uh, ceiling. And the question is just, Let's get him healthy and let's see what we have and start start improving those individual pitches and adding more. Yeah, I I know you've shared his changeup before uh, plenty of times on social media, yeah. and uh, that is I I would agree with you not something that uh, I would like to see get away, but will be interesting because uh, Jed has has certainly mentioned it. Um, I think that that's all we have for you. This was uh, a great discussion. I, I think you, obviously, Brian, could probably continue on about the Cubs system for several more hours, but we'll we'll stop it at one for, for this time. Um, and I, I do want to reiterate again, uh, as we talked about at the beginning, you can listen to episode one of the Bain campaign uh, that is a podcast uh, that Brian is a part of. It's available on Apple Podcasts and everywhere where you find those uh, podcasts. Podcasts. You, you can know, find I'm realizing, his... Corey, I, I, I probably screwed up. You asked me that question about who I don't want the Cubs to trade. I probably should have said my podcast host. I, <laughs> I didn't even think <laughs> about that, so you're, you're throwing yourself under the bus. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah but back vein, please. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll just say it's uh, that was a given, like obviously, right? <laughs> 
Um, you can also find Brian's work at BleacherNation.com. He is at Cub Prospects on Twitter. I, I think that's the, the sales pitch for you, Brian, but anything else you'd like to direct people to, handles, uh, articles, anything like that, um, let us know. No, it's growing too long at this point. Jeez, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, I'm trying to do like a, an audio version of a link tree. Like, here's all the various spots you can find Brian. But I, I believe that is it. Uh, so I will say thank you to Brian for your time. This was a great discussion, uh, especially as we're in this period where, you know, the Cubs are not playing and they're also not really able to do too much outside of front office hires. So if the, the business end of things is, is really your jam, then I guess this has been an exciting couple weeks for you. But uh, I think this was great and, and really helped set us up for the off season. So Brendan and I will be back with you guys next week uh, with the World Series underway. And as we get closer to free agency, arbitration, and unfortunately these CBA talks that, you know, have some uh, doom and gloom reports going about them. But we'll, we'll talk about all that next week. As always, thank you guys for listening to the Cubs Related Podcast, and we will talk to you soon. As always, go Cubs.